Beloved, uh, that said, take your copy of God's Word and let's open up to Luke 16. Let me grab my water and a throat drop if I need it. I really appreciate your patience with me uh, going through another one of these spells. I tried really hard Wednesday and Thursday to avoid it getting worse than it was than I started to feel on Wednesday night. But I have succumbed physically to it. But we're going to plug through it this morning. Uh, Luke 16 is where we are. Let's pray and then we'll read the text, okay? Father, your strength is perfect when our strength is gone. And to that end, I pray that you'll speak through me and not let my voice or a cough here and there become a distraction to the truth. I pray, Father, that your people will hear your voice with their spiritual ears, and they will know you and they will follow you today. I pray, Father, that if there is sin in our lives, that your Holy Spirit might convict us, that we might repent and glorify you through faithful obedience. I pray for our church, that we might continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray for our our community that is dying, that you might build up even in this room an army of disciples who are preaching and proclaiming the gospel in our homes, in our families, amongst our friends. I pray, Father, that we would come to a better understanding of the gospel ourselves. And really, that's what our text this morning hits at. Help us to understand the gospel better so that we can live out the gospel all the more obediently. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 16, verses 14 through 18. Just five verses this morning. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to him, or to all these things, and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, But God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. In nine days, I know that this is the talk of the town, our long national nightmare will be over. Yeah, at least the election part, we hope. Um, we'll cast ballots. Some of you I know already have. Um, And while every presidential election that I can remember has come with the label the most important election of our lifetimes, this one is of of particular concern to believers because there are substantial and legitimate religious liberty issues going on in our country. Many Christians, including myself, don't trust one or more of the candidates as it relates to what their agendas might be to attempt to curtail our freedom, to to live in accordance with what God has said. There are many threats to Jesus' church from the outside. 
That said, even as the threats to our religious liberty are increasing from outside, there are far more and far more dangerous threats to Jesus' church from within, from the inside. Just this week, Lifeway, <coughs> Lifeway is the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. They print our Sunday school materials. Just this week, Lifeway rightly removed the books of Jen Hatmaker, a television personality. You may have seen her on TV before. She's an influential author of books that are aimed at women because she did an interview in which she stated that same-sex relationships can be holy. She's openly affirming something that is a direct contradiction to God's word and God's design. It's an affront on his holiness. That's just one threat from within. There are many more. They are more dangerous. They are more pervasive. I think a pastor who tickles ears rather than occasionally stepping on toes is more dangerous than that. I think uh, Christians who, who measure success by the world's standards rather than scriptures can be more dangerous than that. Those who sow discord rather than love the brethren are more dangerous than that. And the apostles, they're the ones who wrote the, the New Testament. Either an apostle or someone closely tied to an apostle wrote every book in the New Testament. <clears throat> and they warned us about this because they themselves dealt with it. Jesus told them the night before his death, they hated me, they're going to hate you too. You're not going to have it easier than I did. And we saw in Luke 15, Jesus deliver three parables in the direction of enemies from within. The grumbling scribes and Pharisees, they are the superficially religious. Most notably, he gave them the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of a, of, of a son's forgiveness and a father's forgiveness and then another son's self-righteousness and rejection. Then as the chapter turned, so did Jesus' attention. We saw last week that now he was talking to his disciples. And in verses 1 through 13, he gave them another parable, the uh, unrighteous steward. To people who were following him, people who were walking with him, who were ostensibly believing in him. And that parable, as we saw, about a man who was entrusted with the finances of his master, a very rich man. And he mismanaged the funds, and he got fired, but he was told, you need to settle up things before you go, is how it kind of reads. And so what did he do? We saw he went to all the debtors of his very rich master, and he cut deals to lower their debt, but then they'd owe him favors. Not an ethically great thing to do, but in the end, his master the rich man praised him not because of what he did but because of the shrewdness and the point Jesus was making there was how he took advantage of the opportunity he was given the Lord's point to those who follow him was that just as the unrighteous steward used the opportunity given to him to make the most for himself those who trust in Christ those who Jesus uses the term sons of light we need to take every advantage of every opportunity God gives us with everything he has entrusted us with. And specifically money, the, the subject last week. We must take advantage of what we're given to glorify God. Purchase friends not just for earth but for heaven. 
We must glorify God in how we use the money He has given us, that He's entrusted us with, blessed us with. We can't serve God in wealth. We have to serve God with our wealth. That was the point. So Jesus said this to His disciples, but in these next five verses we've just read, we see those grumbling Pharisees were still lurking around. Just as Jesus consistently raised the bar in Luke for what it means to be His disciple, <clears throat> so too are the enemies of God constantly intensifying their opposition to Him. And we continue to see this as we proceed through this gospel. And, and it's very valuable for us this morning because Jesus promised His disciples and His church that we won't have it easier than Him. Again, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. So what do we need to watch for? What qualify? What qualities do these enemies from within possess? That's what this is about. The great physician, Jesus Christ, diagnoses for us the anatomy of a scoffer. What is the anatomy of a scoffer? Well, first we see they have sinful motives. Scoffers have sinful motives. Look at verse 14. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money. And, and just stop right there, because right away we've got a big red flag. They were lovers of money. Beloved, the want of more, as we, as we see in the parable of the unrighteous steward, now, now he's bringing application, the want of more, greed, is a violation of the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet. You shall not want for that which is not yours. You shall not covet. Covetousness is the mark of a traitor of Christ. You could argue that covetousness is right at the heart of the very first sin. Eve saw that the fruit was desirable. She wanted it. It wasn't hers to have, but she wanted it. It follows then that in John 12 we see this in Judas. John 12 verses 5 and 6. Remember that? Where Judas was upset because Mary, the sister of Lazarus, Mary and Martha were his sisters, Mary pours out this pound of very costly perfume. It, it, it basically is a year's wages to a common man what this cost. Okay, She pours it out and anoints Jesus' feet with it. Why didn't we sell it, she, That uh, uh, Judas asked. Why didn't we sell it? We could have helped the poor. Except John himself, in writing that, states, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put in it. So to that end, Judas is the picture of the unrighteous steward, He's the one who carried the money box around for Jesus and the disciples, and he used to mismanage their funds too. What do we <clears throat> see? Judas walked with Christ, but he was never satisfied with Christ. He wanted more when he had the Son of God right before him. He coveted more. So he took it. 1 Timothy 6.10, we read, famous verse, famously misquoted verse. We normally say the love of Money is the root of all evil. That's not exactly what it says. It says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many, many griefs. 
And that was the Pharisees, wasn't it? I mean, Jesus himself, we've seen... It's been a while since we went through this passage, but Luke eleven thirty nine, you are full of robbery and wickedness, is what what he said about the Pharisees. You know, they were consumed with their own bottom lines. They they were concerned about how they appeared before everyone else, but then they would take widows' houses. They would refuse to take care of their own parents financially. Did you know that about the Pharisees? You can read about this in Mark seven. You know, they would have money. But instead of taking care of their parents financially, they would say, Corbin, which is dedicated to God. They would say, what I have is not for them. It's dedicated to God because I'm a little bit more holy than taking care of my parents. As if there's something more holy than honoring your father and mother. Um, they were lovers of money. So Luke had very good reason to, to say that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This was God's indictment of them. They were religious, but they had sinful motives. Paul says their end is their destruction, their God is their appetite, their glory is in their shame in Philippians. And Peter says they have a heart trained in greed. Scoffers don't desire the glory of God. It's, it, 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 they don't steward what God has entrusted to them for the kingdom of God. They always want more. Scoffers have sinful motives. But secondly, scoffers are hostile to authority. Scoffers are hostile to authority. Look at verse 14. Lovers of money, and they were listening to all of these things and were scoffing at them. That's why I'm using the word scoffer today. They were exposed to divine authority. They had not only Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets, not only the Old Testament, but standing before them was the Word of God coming out of the Son of God. And he had by this time proven who he was with many proofs. They had no reason other than their own sinful hearts to deny who he was. <coughs> and they'd heard his parables. They'd heard the parable of the prodigal son. They'd been sitting in the distance when he was telling the parable of their own righteous steward. And they didn't like it. They scoffed. They were hostile to what Jesus said. And why? Because nobody likes being called out on their sins. Nobody enjoys being confronted when they need to repent. Maybe that's one reason why we so little call people out to repent anymore. We don't want to offend them. But here, the Pharisees were those who professed to serve God when they really loved money. They were the ones trying to convince everyone else and perhaps themselves that they loved the Lord, but really what they could get for themselves with their money was their priority. They were their own masters. Wealth was their master. And Jesus' words, he was calling them out. And the Pharisees, like everyone who's playing the religious game, everyone who's playing the part, who profess Christ maybe but don't really know Him, the Pharisees were quick to say they'd come to know God. And by that I mean they thought that they were practically accepted by God by default, but they didn't obey His commands. We're going to see that in a minute. They scoffed at Him. And what did the Scripture say about 
people like this. How about 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4? By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. <coughs> the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Quite simply, beloved, what John is writing there is that if you refuse to obey the Word, if the pattern of your life is one of knowing what to do and not doing it, you don't know Christ. John and the Holy Spirit say you don't love God. You're scoffing at Him. You're scoffing at the truth. And the Pharisees were standing right there. They were scoffers resisting the Lordship of Christ over their lives. So scoffers are hostile to authority. Third, scoffers justify themselves. We saw this in the the parable of the prodigal son too. And Jesus says it as plain as day here, verse 15. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves. And this, beloved, really is the crux of the matter this morning. And it's very appropriate. It comes on Reformation Day, weekend, whatever. They were those who justified themselves. And justification, basically, it means the the means by which we are righteous. The Pharisees declared themselves righteous. Now, they weren't the only group in Israel at the time. Okay, We know that there were Sadducees. We read about them. They were very powerful in the sense that they controlled the temple operations. They were the high priest. You also had... Herodians and Zealots and Essenes. We don't see Essenes in the Scripture, but that's because they were kind of a a commune type of community. Uh, Church history. We'll learn about Essenes a little bit. Um, The Sadducees, uh, more aristocratic. The, The Pharisees, though, had great sway with the people. They, they were very influential to the average Jew. Their brand of Judaism was the Judaism of the masses. And that brand of Judaism was one of works righteousness. Works righteousness. And, and that means what it sounds like. You work to praise God, to please God. You earn your favor with God. You merit His acceptance by doing good works. And the Pharisees, by the way, were the ones who got to define what those good works were, what those good works looked like. <clears throat> Much the same way the Roman Catholic Church did in the early 16th century. A German monk, again, Martin Luther, you know, uh, I love Luther. He started asking a question. How can a just God save a sinner like me? And he didn't find his answers in a Catholic system where councils over the years would disagree with one another and popes would excommunicate one another. And he saw people going around selling these things called indulgences, saying if you pay money, you can get someone out of this place called purgatory, which, by the way, is not in the Bible. It doesn't really exist. And eventually he turned to the Scriptures he, he had to become a professor of theology in a Catholic university before he turned to the Scriptures because they didn't read the Bible back then. And he came to a verse like Romans one seventeen, 
which is a quotation of Habakkuk 2.4, which says, The righteous man shall live by his faith. Later on in Romans, he gets to Romans 5.1. It says, And having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Luther realized that God had declared in the unchanging scriptures something the Catholic councils kept changing. It's not by works we do that we are declared righteous by God. It's by faith in His Son and what He has done. Luther would go on to say justification, and by that I mean justification by faith alone, is the article by which the church stands or falls. And he was right. The Roman Catholic Church today maintains an anti-biblical view of justification and actually has declared those who believe men are declared righteous by faith alone to be condemned by God. Meanwhile, there are very many Catholics and otherwise who are still trying to go to God that way. Pharisees earning their way to righteousness. Be more good than bad. Be better than most. Better than most theology. And dismissing the words of Christ and setting up what Romans 10.3 calls a righteousness of their own. Like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. The Pharisees were scoffing at Jesus here rather than repent when Jesus' words were indicting them. They would double down on their sin instead of repenting. They would justify themselves. They would point to all the things they had done and were doing. To the Pharisees, religion ultimately wasn't about God. It was about them. And indeed, they weren't serving God and wealth. They were serving whatever they felt would make them wealthy. And whatever allow them, whatever would allow them to maintain it. It's the way a lot of people go around about religion today, actually. Pretty much for everyone who doesn't truly know Christ. And so the question we've got to ask ourselves is in what, or rather in whom, are you trusting this morning? When you stand before God, what is it you're going to point to and say, that's why I deserve to be here? Or that that's why I am here. What are you going to point to? Or rather, who are you going to point to? Will you point to all the things that you have done? I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. I was baptized. I went to church. I gave offerings. I even gave the special offerings. I donated my time. I donated my resources. Or will you say... Jesus. Scoffers have sinful motives. Scoffers are hostile to authority. Scoffers justify themselves. Fourthly, these start to go quicker now. Scoffers seek the affirmation of others. Scoffers seek the affirmation of others. Scoffers want to be viewed as higher than others. In, in the sight of men is the key phrase there in, in, in verse 15. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 6-1. 6, 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. The Pharisees would blow trumpets in the synagogues when they gave to the poor. Jesus talks about this. Matthew 6, 1 and 2. They blew trumpets to say, look at what I've done so that men would honor them. And what did Jesus say? You have your reward in full. I hope you liked the music. The bottom line, beloved, is that if you act in a manner of righteousness so that people will notice, you may be acting in a manner of righteousness, but it's not righteous. It's a cheap counterfeit, and the praise of men is all you'll get. Instead, what do we need? We need the attitude of Paul in Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Are we living for what God will think of us or for what others will think of us? The Pharisees liked to talk about their devotion to God, but Jesus made it clear whose affirmation they were really seeking. Scoffers seek the affirmation of others. Fifth, <coughs> scoffers have evil hearts. Out of bounds, right? Scoffer, how dare you judge someone else's heart? That's harsh. I mean, that, that doesn't fly to make statements like that these days. Scoffers have evil hearts. I mean, we're talking politics, right? I'm old enough to remember 1983, I think, President Reagan getting a lot of flack for calling the Soviet Union the evil empire. Whoa, why? I can't believe he'd say, and we're 33 years past that now. Can't call people evil. We're very politically correct, even in the church. We're very hesitant to use the kind of language that Scripture itself uses to diagnose the human condition. I mean, look at what Jesus said. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable. In the sight of God. Now, some of us have been called deplorable in this presidential campaign. But God says that evil hearts are detestable. A solemn reminder that God is not fooled, okay? God is not fooled. And by the way, I'm not trying to make a partisan statement there. Definitely not. The Pharisees could look the part all they wanted. And we today, you here today, you can look the part all you want to, but God will never ever be fooled, okay? One of the scariest verses in Scripture is Hebrews 4, 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before him with whom we have to do. God's not fooled. And still, you might say, but, but evil detestable I'm not perfect but I'm not evil and detestable well that's your opinion and quite frankly your opinion doesn't matter one of my college professors 
put it this way, unless there is a fourth chair carved into the Holy Trinity with your name on it, really, God does not care what you think. That's a great quote. God's Word says that as a result of our sinful hearts, we do only evil continually. He said that before the flood, granted. But He also said that after the flood. Okay? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. So how do we know our own hearts if it's more deceitful than all else? We are not qualified to diagnose ourselves. We, we, we can't, but God knows. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have gone astray. Romans 3. We're not qualified to quantify our own sinfulness. We're not qualified at all to assert before God how great or terrible we or anyone else is because we are all sinners. And if we are sinners at all, and we all are, then we deserve to be judged accordingly. We've all sinned against an infinite God, so we deserve infinite punishment. He's infinitely holy, and so we all deserve the penalty of eternal destruction. We all deserve to be cast out of His presence forever. Because apart from the grace of God, we're all scoffers. The only reason you're not a scoffer this morning, if you're not a scoffer, is by the grace of God. Otherwise, we all have evil hearts apart from the grace of God. So sixth, six and seven kind of run together here. Scoffers don't believe in the gospel. I believe in the gospel. The Pharisees probably would have said the same thing when Jesus was alive. Scoffers don't believe in the gospel. Look at verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Jesus is saying, the gospel is not just a New Testament thing. It's been proclaimed from the beginning until John the Baptist and now Jesus is standing in their midst and now he is the focus of all of God's promises. He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. The gospel before, it didn't change but, but, but before Jesus came, it was a Messiah is coming. Trust in the Lord. When Jesus was here on earth, the Messiah is here. Trust in the Lord. Today, it's the Messiah has come and it will come again. Trust in the Lord. At the center of it all is what? Trust in the Lord. We are justified by faith. And to believe in Him, to force your way in, it happens by the grace of God. <clears throat> but as we'll read in First Peter at the beginning of our services going forward for a while, it involves great struggle. It's a narrow road. It, it will invite, a faithful life will invite opposition from sin and, and, and the devil. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. And while scoffers might be religious, they aren't doing that. Their religion is different. They don't entrust themselves to Jesus, to the Lord in this way. They don't believe in the gospel. And so that leads to the, to the, to the, to the related number seven. 
They don't understand grace. Scoffers don't understand grace. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now, I'm going to admit something to you. And it's something you might be thinking as you hear me read this in the context of this sermon. What does that have to do with what we just read? I want to admit to you, first time I read this, as I was planning out sermons and I, and, and, and I tried to plan out the sections of text I'll preach several weeks and even months in advance, as I was looking through this, I was like, Verse 18 in particular really looks like it has nothing to do... What in the world did Jesus bring that up for? It almost seems disconnected. But it's not here by accident. Let's think through this. The Pharisees grumbled when Jesus was around tax collectors and sinners. Even though there is joy in heaven when even one sinner repents... They grumbled. They could not fathom how God or any self-respecting Jew could be around people like that. No concept of grace, no capacity for forgiveness. They were all law, 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 tradition, 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 law, 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 without realizing Jesus isn't violating any of the law. He may be violating your man-made traditions, but he's not violating the law of God. And he's raising the bar. Raising the bar, raising the bar of what it means to be his disciple. He's raising the bar of the law. You have seen it in the scriptures. You shall not murder, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, the Supreme Court. Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount, right? Christ affirmed the very law the Pharisees fancied themselves guardians of. And then he said, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. And the Pharisees didn't commit they didn't condone adultery per se. <clears throat> but they did very much misinterpret what Moses had to say about all this in Deuteronomy twenty four. And they twisted Old Testament teaching on the subject to simply justify doing away with a wife for pretty much any reason whatsoever. If, if, if a husband was displeased with his wife and, and pretty much for whatever reason, he could send her away the way Joseph was thinking about sending Mary away when they were betrothed and she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees would have been okay with that and actually they weren't they were betrothed but they had not come together yet so the law of God is actually they were okay with it. I mean, more on that another day. The point is, Jesus' words pointed the Pharisees back to creation and the fact that God created marriage to be between, and this goes back to the enemies from within, the, the book that was taken out, books that were taken out. One man, one woman, till death do they part. That's marriage. That's, biblical, that's what the Bible says about marriage. Plain and simple. 
Jesus will later say, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus indicted the Pharisees. They claimed to love the law, but really only used it to suit their own purposes. Which is what many scoffers do. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The Pharisees used the law, but they didn't meditate in it. Hypocrites today use the Bible, but they don't delight in it. And God will not be fooled. This morning, beloved, it is my earnest prayer that you won't leave here thinking God can be fooled. If you are in your heart a scoffer, I call on you to repent by the authority of the Word of God. He knows your heart. Do not, in as much as it depends on you, do not let Him find you detestable. But by the grace of God, you won't be found detestable in His sight if you come to Him, not based on you, but based on what He has done. God has borne in His own Son the full fury of His wrath against all sin for all time, for all who will ever be justified by faith in Him and Him alone. And He gives you victory over sin. Victory over being a scoffer by the power of His resurrection. We were not chosen to justify ourselves, 1 Peter 1, verse 2. We were chosen to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Be redeemed by the blood of Christ and delight in the law of God in total. And God will save you. Not by works but that we have done, but by the work that Christ has done. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, uh, your word is more powerful than my voice this morning. And I pray that it will not return void. In fact, you tell us it won't. So I thank you for that, that you can use an imperfect messenger to glorify yourself. And now, Father, I pray your word will penetrate our hearts and that we would not be willing to do away with one stroke of your word, but trust completely in you and obey. We believe in you, Father. We believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And there is not a fourth chair carved out in the Holy Trinity. Help us to love you and to reflect that love for you by lives that serve you wholeheartedly for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.